0: Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally are Monday mornings on KPFA, just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls.
1: I'm Ariel Boone, in for Brian Edwards-Teekert. We are talking about the latest news in COVID science and public health, and we are joined as we usually are on Monday mornings by Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. So today the US is in one of its largest coronavirus spikes since the pandemic began in 2020. And an op-ed in the LA Times estimated the quantity of COVID in wastewater in the US right now suggests about 2 million people could be infected with COVID every day. Dr. Swartzberg, where are we right now?
2: Well, where we are in terms of how many people are infected each day is that our feet are firmly planted in the air. We just don't know because the only data we have is wastewater data in terms of telling us what's currently happening. And that data, as you just mentioned from Dr. Topol's editorial, um, suggests that there are close to two million people, either now or by the middle of this month, who will be getting COVID every day. The problem is that wastewater testing is a relatively new science. And trying to correlate it directly with how many cases are occurring is, it's a little premature, perhaps. But I think the bottom line is, If you take that data and you combine it with the anecdotal data that I think we all know somebody right now with COVID, and you combine that with the hospitalization data that really reflects what's going on about two weeks after it happened, all of that is pointing in the direction that there are a lot of cases happening.
1: If you are listening, you have questions about the latest COVID science, give us a call to 1-800-958-9008. So back to this wastewater question, we do see a spike in wastewater. Like you said, the hospital admissions data is on a delay from that. But so far, have they increased less than one might expect? I saw an article saying there could be more disease right now but less severe disease. Is that true? And if so, why do you think that is?
2: I think it is true. Um, I think that all the data we have suggests that there's, A, a lot of cases happening, but B, not as many ER visits as we would see have seen in the past with the number of cases that are occurring or that are likely occurring, and C, that the number of hospitalizations are less than we would expect from the number of cases that are likely occurring. All of this points to the fact that it appears that COVID right now is causing fewer ER visits, fewer hospitalizations, and fewer deaths. All these last three numbers, ER visits, hospitalizations, and deaths are increasing, but not proportionate to the likely number of cases. Why? We can only hypothesize. I think the, the most likely reason or the reason that plays the greatest role is that the background of immunity of Americans right now is very, very high. Almost 97% of all Americans have either had COVID once or more times, or have been vaccinated or both. So the virus now is facing a population that has some degree of immunity. Whereas when it started over four years ago, nobody had immunity. So I think that that's playing a major role in modifying what we're seeing. Also, the current subvariant of Omicron called JN.1, that now is comprising over 60% of all the cases in the United States and probably worldwide as well, is very, very transmissible, but doesn't appear to be any more virulent than any of the other subvariants of Omicron. And we know that Omicron, Seems to cause less severe disease than its predecessors, like alpha and delta. Those two things combined, the current subvariant being perhaps a little less virulent than what we saw earlier in the pandemic, and the background immunity of our population, those are the two things that are likely modifying how serious COVID infections are now compared to even a year ago and certainly two years ago.
1: To a a somber topic, President Trump had trumpeted the use of hydroxychloroquine against recommendations from the CDC and the FDA, but many physicians actually prescribed it anyway during the beginning of the pandemic. And a new study in biomedicine and pharmacotherapy coming out in February but published online now estimates almost 17,000 deaths associated with hydroxychloroquine could have occurred in six countries, the US, Turkey, France, Italy, Spain, Belgium. In the US, the low estimate was that perhaps over 3,000 people had died related to hydroxychloroquine on the low end during the pandemic, and the upper estimate was that over 15,000 people had died due to this. I know you are not a medical anthropologist, but Two questions for you. Is this something we have seen with other diseases or other recent history? People taking uh, 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 pharmacological interventions that were not recommended and having toxic outcomes during a mass pandemic event like this. And what do you think of the study?
2: Sure. Well, the history of of medicine is replete with snake oil salesmen. purporting all sorts of cures for things. And most of those cures were innocuous, but some of them were very dangerous. We saw that during the great influenza pandemic of 1918, 1919. And we've seen it steadily throughout um, uh, the 20th century and 21st century, but it preceded that by centuries. So this is not a new phenomenon. What's tragic about it is that the... Here with COVID, the greatest snake oil salesman was Trump, in terms of promoting or promoting the use of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, which was completely irresponsible, and as this study showed, turned out to be dangerous. So I think that um, while it was these were very difficult times earlier in the pandemic, in terms of not having a, a drug like. Molnupiravir or Paxlovid available or Remdesivir available. People were desperate and wanted something, and they turned to whatever the the salesman was promoting at that time, and tragically it led to bad outcomes.
1: All right, we're going to turn to a couple listener questions now. We have Dan on the line in New York. Dan, what is your question for Dr. Swartzberg?
0: I'm wondering if all the
2: home tests, the home standard uh, antigen home tests are um, 100% valid for new strains of COVID. Um, I got COVID for the first time about three months ago, and I started questioning
1: all of my assumptions, uh, one of which was that the tests are applicable to all strains of COVID, or do we have
2: to revise our tests? That's a very important question you're asking, Dan, and that is something that is studied uh, very, very carefully on an ongoing basis. The good news is, to date, there have not been isolates of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, that that are not detected with the antigen test. To put it another way, the antigen test continues to be very accurate for all the circulating strains that we're currently seeing. Could this change? It's certainly possible, but we have not seen that to date. The reason why um, people are concerned about this is obvious, I think, that if our diagnostic tests aren't very valuable, how do we control this infectious disease? Um, But also that the diagnostic tests that we use for home tests, as opposed to the one that's done typically in the laboratory, the PCR test, often are negative early in the course of the infection. So if somebody wakes up in the morning and they've got a sore throat and nasal discharge and don't and they don't feel well and they test themselves and it turns out to be negative, that does not mean that the current symptoms you're having are not COVID. It just means that there is not enough antigen to be detected at that point. And that's why the CDC and certainly most doctors recommend repeated testing so people shouldn't assume that, they're, that they don't have COVID if their initial test is negative, and they definitely need to repeat it once or sometimes even twice.
1: We had a question about a symptomatic spread as well to our inbox. We had a listener, Sheila, who says, I attended a three-person New Year's Eve dinner in a private home. No one had symptoms. Four days later, two of us had symptoms and tested positive. We are seniors, ages 60s and 70s, vaccinated, healthy, no underlying conditions, but, we're experiencing fever, cold symptoms, et cetera. Sheila says it's frustrated to be being careful, but it doesn't feel there's a way to predict asymptomatic spread and asked Dr. Swartzberg, what do you think?
2: Sure. Um, Unfortunately, this virus is a real stealth virus in the sense that it easily spreads from person to person in people who are asymptomatic. It can spread up to 48 hours before a person becomes symptomatic. Uh, Typically, it's around 24 hours before you become symptomatic, you're contagious. And some people never become symptomatic, but still can spread the virus. If you remember back to the early part of the 21st century when SARS-CoV-1 was spreading around the world, fortunately, that particular version of the coronavirus did not spread asymptomatically. It only spread when people became symptomatic and that made it much easier to control. But as Sheila's pointing out, if you can spread the virus when you feel perfectly well, then that's a great opportunity for the virus to get into other human beings. Our best defenses really are, of course, not to get the virus in the first place. And the best thing to do about that is to be sure you're up to date with all the vaccines. Another defense is if you're going to a party and you feel completely well, you could do the rapid antigen test. Again, it's not going to be nearly 100% accurate, but if it is positive, it would tell you you're asymptomatically shedding the virus and you should not be around other people. So if you combine being vaccinated with a rapid test before you go to a party, um, and that you, that you definitely don't go anywhere if you're asymptomatic, excuse me, if you're symptomatic, those are the, that's the best you can do, but it's not going to be 100% protection. There's no way to be 100% protected against this virus.
1: All right, our next caller, John in Fresno, what is your question?
2: Good morning. Uh, your prior answer confused me because I thought the uh, vaccination and boosters for COVID uh, had the effect of, le- of lessening the chance of hospitalization and death, but we're not preventative from infection. So would you clarify that? But also I'd like to ask, to what extent uh, does COVID and um, RSV work together or are they completely independent? Does one set up for the other? Interesting questions, John. Um, let me take the, the one about uh, the vaccine. Um, <clears throat> after you're vaccinated, for at least a good month, it's very unlikely you're going to get infected because your immunity is at peak level. And that may, for some individuals, spill over into two months or three months. But for at least a month, it's very unlikely you're going to get infected. And if you're not infected, you're not going to spread the virus. So that's a nice effect of the vaccine, we certainly like that effect to be six months or a year or 10 years, of course, um, but it doesn't protect us against getting infected very long. It gives us a short term protection. On the other hand, as you point out correctly, the vaccine continues for months and perhaps longer to give us good protection against serious illness that is going to land us in the emergency room or hospitalize us, or even kill us. So the vaccine's major role, and what it was frankly designed for, was to keep people out of the hospital and keep them, of course, from dying. And it's doing a good job against that, but it doesn't do a real good job against protecting us from getting infected over the first month or so after you get the vaccine. In regards to your second question, The combined infection with SARS-CoV-2 and RSV can occur, but it's very unusual. And we don't have enough clinical data to know whether the combined infection would make both of these viruses cause more serious damage to the individual than if we had one at a time. Intuitively, you would think it would happen, but it does not happen very often that you get both of these viruses at the same time. The earlier studies where we have more data is with influenza, and it turned out to be the case that co-infection of influenza with SARS-CoV-2 turned out not to be very common. And when it occurred, there was some data that suggested that the illness the person got was worse than if either one happened by themselves, but the data was very not very strong. Bottom line to this, uh, you don't want to get any of these three viruses, RSV, influenza, or COVID, and it's probably it makes intuitive sense not to get them together, but we don't have good clinical data to suggest that that happens often, nor if it does, that it causes more serious illness.
1: All right, we are talking with Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. If you have questions about the latest COVID science, you can give us a call. The number is 1-800-958-9008. And we're also taking questions by email to coronacalls at kpfa.org. We've got another listener on the line, Joel in San Francisco. Joel, what is your question?
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, Somebody told me that they heard that you can only use Paxlovid once in your life. Is that true? Uh, There's no data to suggest that you can only use it once. The argument would be that if you've used Paxlovid, that if you get infected with the virus again, it won't work because the virus that you had before was got resistant to it. And there's no evidence that that happened. And of course, if you get COVID a second time, it's gonna be with a different uh, from somebody else. And so it's not the same virus you had in the first place. Bottom line to that point is that there's no evidence that uh, Paxlovid is, well, let me word this differently. Um, Paxlovid appears to be effective for the first episode of COVID, for the second and for the third, but hopefully you won't be getting more than one and hopefully none.
1: We had another listener question by email. Deanne asked, Dr. Swartzberg, are you familiar with an oral nasal spray, liquid mask, primarily iodine based, that supposedly offers protection against respiratory infections? An acupuncturist recommended it to me to spray it in my nose and mouth before going into crowded places like stores, concerts, airports, and then masking. Have you heard of this?
2: I've heard of it. Um, I have not seen any good science to support that claim, unfortunately. There are lots of people reporting lots of ideas about different nasal sprays, and some of these reports are actually being um, subjected to rigorous scientific study, and we're hopeful that some of these, of course, will be salutary. Uh, But the use of iodine as a nasal spray, I have not seen any science to support that claim at all. And frankly, it's hard for me to um, understand the biological plausibility of that working, but sometimes one can be surprised. Bottom line, um, I would not do that.
1: All right. Our next question also coming from the phone, we've got Omawale in Berkeley.
0: What is your question for Dr. Swartzberg?
1: My question is
0: um, coughing. I ride the bus all the time, and then um, we have other members of the community who are also at parties and so forth. Masking is still being um, used on AC Transit buses, I'm happy to report, but I also wanted to know if you thought double or triple masking with KN95s and also with surgical masks was one way for people to kind of prevent anything going on and then go home and test yourself after you get home.
2: Hi, Omawali, um, that's an important question.
0: Happy New Year. <laughs>
2: Thank you, and to you too. Um, that's an important question, and it's actually been looked at. And that is the question of double masking or even triple masking. It turns out, interestingly, that it's not a good idea to double mask or triple mask. And the reason for that is that the different masks often will create a poor seal And you actually may wind up letting more air escape around the sides of all three masks or all two masks. So the best thing to do is to wear a good mask. And I think that's where people are making a mistake when they wear like a surgical mask, which is not a particularly good mask in terms of preventing COVID or influenza or RSV. Um, A good mask would be the best in N95 next best and almost the same as a KN-95 or a KN-94 or an F-94 so those are the three that you'd want to consider using uh, to give you the best protection but also you want to use one of those masks that gives you the best seal around your nose around your cheeks around your chin so that you don't wind up getting air coming in around the sides so One of those three masks that gives you the best seal is the one to wear. And don't wear something over that because it might make the mask like the KN95 or the N95 not fit as well.
0: What was the last one? The last mask you mentioned?
2: KF-94. N95
1: and KF-94, thank you.
2: You're welcome.
1: All right, Dr. Swartzberg, Journal of the American Medical Association published an article by two physicians last week asking if the United States is at a dangerous vaccination tipping point, meaning that more people are declining vaccines for all sorts of illnesses after societal backlash at this point after the COVID response, and people are denying these vaccines either religious beliefs or safety. Fears, From a public health standpoint with years of experience with this, where do you think the U.S. goes now in trying to encourage vaccine uptake for all sorts of illnesses among the public if existing vaccine campaigns and education are not working? And the argument that they're not working is that only, I think, a fifth of U.S. adults have gotten their updated COVID vaccine that began to be available last fall.
2: Yes, I think that was a very important editorial, one that was um, should have come out a lot sooner than it did. we're We're witnessing an a, a tragedy, and that tragedy is that because of disinformation and misinformation, people are afraid to or refusing to, for other reasons, get vaccinated or vaccinate their children. Vaccines have a long record of safety. Vaccines have saved millions of lives here in the United States and throughout the world since they've become available well over a century ago. If you look specifically at SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, it's been estimated by several people that probably 200,000 deaths in this pandemic, occurred in people who didn't get vaccinated, who could have been vaccinated, who refused to get vaccinated. And that's just a tragedy. This disinformation and misinformation that is being fanned by social media um, is causing too many people to doubt the value of vaccines and exposing themselves and their children to unnecessary and sometimes horrific results. So, yes, the vaccine was very important, excuse me, this editorial was very important. What do we need to do? It represents a failure of public health and society in general in terms of educating people and, and really working with the population to get them to
0: understand the safety of vaccines. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for the next one, you can shoot an email anytime to upfront at kpfa.org, or you can tune in live. We normally broadcast Mondays, just after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA. we put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people, and we ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. I appreciate it if you mentioned Corona calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Teagert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.